1: Much of life as we know it in the United States has drastically changed over recent weeks. Local and state authorities have closed many businesses and mandated that residents stay at home or limit the size of gatherings. And yet how these restrictions are implemented across the country varies widely. Furthermore, even in areas where restrictions can carry legal penalties, enforcement is rare. The United States is, of course, set up this way. States have the power to work independently in coordination with the federal government. But it means our country's response to the novel coronavirus pandemic is much more patchy and localized than in other countries responding around the world. And so here, state and local variations in guidance have caused quite a bit of confusion about what exactly is allowed during this time and where. It's also raised questions about the federal government's role in instituting social distancing measures nationwide. How likely are we to see greater enforcement against breaking social distancing rules? Can the president order the entire country to shelter in place? And for that matter, if President Trump wants the country to resume normal life soon, as he has both suggested publicly and offered guidelines for in a recent letter to governors, can he force local or state governments to make that happen? We've got answers. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Alison Michaels. The Washington Post's national correspondent Griff Whitty took a deep look at how various jurisdictions around the country are enforcing some of these social distancing measures. I talked to him about it. We see a lot of terms like lockdown and social distancing. Can you just explain how these terms are being defined by different governors and local officials? What's a stay-at-home order versus a shelter-in-place versus a social distancing order?
0: It's very confusing because different terms are used for things that mean relatively similar things. So, for instance, California was one of the first to institute shelter-in-place orders and saying, you know, you've got to stay at home, you shouldn't be going out except for essential reasons. New York, early on in the crisis, issued some pretty similar guidelines, but basically didn't call them shelter-in-place orders because he, the governor said, Governor Cuomo said, shelter in place is a scary idea to people. And so we're not gonna call it that, but effectively that was what it was. It was stay at home, don't go out, don't be going over to other people's houses. So you have a pretty wide variety of measures that are being taken here. They're being called different things in different places, and they are being enforced in a really disparate manner.
1: Can you just lay out for me where the country stands right now? What are the existing guidelines today across the United States?
0: It's a complete patchwork. Every state is doing something different within states. Counties are doing different things. Cities are doing different things. You're really seeing in this crisis the federal nature of the United States of America coming to life. And really, it's contributing to the situation in which there are different rules everywhere. There's different enforcement everywhere. Obviously, you have governors and mayors who are really putting their foot on the gas and accelerating what they're doing in terms of ordering people to stay at home, in terms of ordering businesses. To shut down in in terms of ordering people not to congregate in groups. But even in places where there are pretty severe restrictions being put in place, a lot of those restrictions aren't actually being enforced by anyone.
1: I want to understand better how governors are equipped to make these kinds of decisions. How are they making these decisions? What information are they using?
0: So we're seeing a lot of governors relying very heavily on their medical advisors. And so every state will have the leader of the health department or senior doctors who are advising them and guiding them. So in for instance, in Ohio, you have a governor, Mike DeWine, who was consistently out in front early on in this crisis in shutting things down. He was among the first to say schools should be closed. He was among the first to say people shouldn't be congregating. He was among the first to say non-essential businesses need to be shut down. But when you look at well, why he was he saying these things, where was he getting his information? He will say, and he does say at, at press conferences, he is relying extensively on the advice of his top medical expert, Dr. Amy Acton. And she is very much guiding his decision-making. And you're seeing that in a lot of states right now where the governors are saying, you know, we're going to take strong measures here. These are measures that are guided by medicine, guided by scientific advice, guided by our best understanding of the epidemiology of the novel coronavirus. And so we're we're listening to the experts. And that is something that, that governors have been very keen to point out, they want to make sure that the public knows that they're not just making these decisions on their own, because obviously, in the vast majority of cases, governors are not experts in epidemiology or in public health.
1: And then in terms of enforcement, there's essentially two buckets, right? The states can enforce that these businesses stay closed. But then there's, of course, individuals. Have we seen any enforcement of Businesses or individuals at this point, and and how are these measures actually being enacted?
0: We've seen limited enforcement. Now, the the states, the counties, the cities, they actually do have significant powers. They can fine, uh, you know, a business that stays open that's not supposed to be open. They can fine it. You know, people who are congregating when they're not supposed to be congregating in large groups theoretically they could all be people in the, that situation could all be charged with misdemeanors these are these are crimes in a lot of states now to be going out and gathering together in in a large group but what we're seeing is that it's it's a very limited number of officials who have actually said yes we're going to go out and enforce these new restrictions that have been implemented under governor's emergency powers. So I spoke with a county executive in New York for the story that I wrote. And he said he was a former uh, New York City police detective. He leads a county, Rockland County in New York, just outside of New York City, that has seen a a really major surge of coronavirus cases in the last few days. He says there has never been a, a more important time to actually enforce the rules. So, you know, there was a over the weekend, there was a wedding it was. There were reports that more than fifty people were there. the The county executive sent his health department out right away to uh, try to shut that wedding down, citing yeah. the people who were hosting it, saying, "You're you're not allowed to be hosting a gathering of this size." The police actually also responded to that incident, and they declined to to actually disperse the the gathering, declined to to issue any fines or citations, and you you see there that there is this lack of coordination. And there's also a uh, disagreement, a fundamental tension there among different leaders, police departments, executives, governors, mayors, over how uh, rigorously these measures should be enforced. There's a fear among a lot of police chiefs out there that if these measures are rigorously enforced from day one, that there's going to be a backlash, and it's going to make it much, much more difficult over the long term to get the public to comply.
1: What are some of the other reasons that law enforcement might be hesitant to enforce these measures very strictly?
0: For one thing, it's scary for officers to enforce. So in 1918, during the flu pandemic, you had police officers in places like Seattle and Boston really rebelling against their orders to, to carry out their tasks because it was so dangerous. You know, police officers were going into situations where they could infect themselves. They could then come home from duty and infect their families. This is terrifying for them. And and it's, you know, today it's it's a similar situation where police officers are on the front lines of trying to maintain public order. We've already seen a number of police departments throughout the country where officers are are becoming infected. The infections are spreading within departments and they wanna make sure that they're healthy enough to maintain public order through what is going to be a very, very long crisis. And so I think a lot of police commanders out there say, we don't want our officers wading their way into, into large groups of people. We wanna minimize our officers' contact with the public And so I think that that is a big issue. And I think that fundamentally we have departments that are just uh, strapped uh, resource wise and they can't, they feel like they can't be out policing every single dry cleaning business that may or may not uh, still be operating or every single game of pickup basketball at the public park that may be going on or every group of people who are congregating on the beach in Florida. I think that there's a sense among the within police forces that this is just an overwhelming task on top of everything else that they're trying to do.
1: So those are the risks inherent to enforcing these stay-at-home orders. But are there risks to relying on on volunteer cooperation in in a time like this?
0: Absolutely. You know there is every possibility that if these measures are not enforced vigorously, that they're going to be ineffective, that the virus will continue to spread, that you will be ordering people to shelter in place, but they're not going to be following those restrictions. They're going to keep their businesses open. They're going to keep gathering. They're going to keep traveling. And the virus, the spread of the virus won't, that, that curve won't flatten, but the spread of the virus will continue unabated. So when you look at other countries, China, obviously, it's an authoritarian uh, system there. They order people to stay at home and, and people, by and large, are not going to challenge that order because they know the consequences if they challenge it. In Italy, you have police departments that are sending out drones to make sure that people are actually adhering to orders to stay at home. In the United Kingdom... There are orders that the police be allowed to make arrests, a, that the police be enabled to issue fines on the spot if they see people who are violating the lockdown that's been implicated in the UK. The United States is different. It's This is the home of rugged individualism. It's the home of uh, a lot of people who, who don't want the government interfering in their lives, interfering with their civil liberties. And I think that as time goes on, we're going to see this question of whether these restrictions can be enforced really brought to bear more and more. I think, you know, we have a public where a very substantial portion of people don't believe coronavirus is a real threat, or they think it's been hyped by the media, or they think it's exaggerated, or think they think the doctors are lying. And you know, if if those people get together and decide we're not adhering to these restrictions anymore, that obviously is a major problem. You also have a lot of communities in the United States, Black, Latino, minority communities, where they have been on the uh, receiving ends of some very discriminatory and prejudiced police tactics and police approaches. And there's a mistrust there. And if if they don't trust that these restrictions are being enforced in a way that is equitable, in a way that is non-discriminatory, that's also going to be a big problem for the U.S.
1: I just want to ask uh, one Last question about sort of federal level enforcement. We've seen President Trump deploy the National Guard to several states that have been hardest hit by the coronavirus. How might the National Guard be used to enforce some of these stay-at-home orders, if at all?
0: So my understanding is that that, again, is is up to the governors, and it's not going to be a federal decision that is made. You know, the governors can request the National Guard to to help, and then the governors have pretty wide discretion in terms of figuring out what the National Guard is going to be doing to be of service. So my understanding is that it's the, the governors who request the National Guard, and then the president can and, and Washington can authorize it. And then it's up to the governors to figure out what to do with, with National Guard's officers.
1: So what challenges do you foresee in the coming weeks as America struggles to enforce some of these stay-at-home orders and certain communities decide to defy them?
0: I think the biggest question is, does voluntary compliance work in the long term? You know, you have police departments saying, we're not enforcing these measures right now. That's true. But we're seeing the public by and large comply. Now, there are exceptions. You, know, you think about the spring breakers in Florida, you know, partying through through last week. You, you think about, you know, certain parks in the United States where we've seen images of people gathering in large numbers on the weekends. But by and large, departments, police departments say these voluntary compliance approaches are working. If they stop working, if people decide all of a sudden, I've had enough of this, I can't stand being cooped up any longer, I can't stand not running my business because I need the income, that's going to be a pivotal moment in the evolution of this crisis because there is... At at that point, police departments nationwide will face a choice. Do they step in and try to enforce these measures, which is going to be costly, which is going to be extremely difficult, and may result in a backlash? Or are they going to stand aside and say, we we are powerless to, to make these enforcement measures work, at which point the whole premise of social distancing, the whole premise that we if we act collectively, we can defeat this virus, that suddenly falls apart.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday. Or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Voluntary compliance, as Griff says, is key to slowing the spread of the virus. But what if the federal government wants to or needs to take more drastic action? How much power does the president have to officially lock down the country? Virtually none. That's Lindsay Wiley. I'm a professor of law and director of the health law and
2: policy program at American University Washington College of Law.
1: I asked Lindsay to explain why a federally mandated shutdown is so unlikely in the U.S. from a legal perspective.
2: If that were to happen at the presidential level, it would certainly be challenged in the courts. And I venture to guess almost certainly struck down the authority to close businesses and to restrict movements of residents is really at the state and local level, primarily at the state level, and in some cases delegated to local governments as well. The federal authority, particularly the presidential authority, is to direct resources, remove regulatory constraints that would otherwise stand in the way of developing things like tests and vaccines and treatments, and to offer guidance, but not mandates, to state and local governments.
1: So even though at this point state and local governments are taking most of the actions, there have been three national emergencies declared, each one of these emergencies with their own sort of subset of rules. So can you first explain the public health emergency piece of this and what that declaration enables? So the
2: first declaration that we had from the federal government was on January 31st, a declaration of a public health emergency under a statute called the Public Health Services Act, that emergency was declared pursuant to the statutory authority by Secretary Azar, the HHS secretary. And that was a crucial step to allow Secretary Azar to coordinate the efforts of the Health and Human Services Department to implement immediately the finances and the regulatory flexibilities needed to develop tests to develop vaccines and to develop therapeutics. That authority would have been sufficient and the financing would have been sufficient to ramp up the kind of testing that happened in South Korea, for example. But there were a series of missteps that have been documented by the press that stopped that from happening and continues to stand in the way of surveillance level testing. So that Public Health Services Act is primarily about medical countermeasures about tests, vaccines,
1: therapeutics. So does a public health emergency mean that the power to make decisions lies more with public health officials or agencies to enforce things, or are those powers still exercised by the president?
2: No, the the public health emergency primarily changes the relationship between the presidential administration and Congress. It allows the presidential administration, including the health and human services secretary who serves at the pleasure of the president, to do things that would otherwise require congressional approval. It's essentially uh, a delegation from Congress in advance that allows uh, regulatory flexibilities, allows the, the, the administration to take steps that otherwise would require congressional action if they follow
1: the right procedure and declare the emergency. I see. Okay, but then Trump has also declared a national emergency under the National Emergencies Act. And this use of this act happens fairly regularly. We've had many occasions to address it even here on on this show. But can you explain what this particular emergency declaration has allowed for at this point? So the National Emergencies Act is a much
2: broader but less deep power. It's used that those declarations, as you said, are used, have been used fairly often for all kinds of things that seem pretty prosaic compared to the coronavirus pandemic. It does, though, allow the president to direct other agencies that you might not think of as being as central to the response to take steps that can be important. So in the National Emergency Act declaration that the president made on March 13th, for example, he directed the secretary of the Treasury to adopt flexibilities in terms of the tax filing deadline. That can also be used subsequently to direct administration officials in places like the Department of Labor or the Department of uh, Housing and Urban Development to take steps that would be beneficial in the response. But that's really, in some ways, the least central of the
1: three statutes under which there have been national declarations. Okay, so let's talk about the third. The third national emergency declaration was put in place under something called the Stafford Act. And I want to spend a little bit more time on this because a lot of myths have emerged during this whole experience. So many that FEMA has already launched a coronavirus rumor control page on their site. And one key of this misinformation, is this this series of text messages that have spread. You may have gotten one. I'm sure many of our listeners have gotten one, suggesting that the president will imminently lock down the country for two weeks using this emergency law called the Stafford Act. So let's just start with this. What is the Stafford Act? The Stafford Act is something that we tend to use mostly in response
2: to natural disasters. But over, especially over the last two decades, there's been more and more of an effort to organize our response to natural disasters, to terrorism and to pandemics, all under a central framework that's referred to as all hazards, preparedness and response. As part of that uh, Stafford Act declaration of a nationwide emergency, meaning an emergency that's occurring in all states simultaneously on March 13th. That Stafford Emergency Declaration invokes some of FEMA's authorities and resources to help respond to the crisis. But the Stafford Act Emergency Declaration specified that FEMA would still be coordinating that response subject to the lead authority of the Health and Human Services Department. The Stafford Act, again, just like these other emergency declarations, it primarily changes the relationship between the presidential administration and Congress. None of these emergency declarations in any way suspend our constitutional rights, for example, nor do they change in any direct way the relationship between the federal government and the states. There are some flexibilities though that are triggered by the Stafford Act declarations that are happening to respond in situations where state capacity is already overwhelmed or is likely to be overwhelmed in the future. And so the Stafford Act declarations are important, for example, in ensuring that the federal government can exercise its responsibility and authority and resources to ensure that there are adequate personal protective equipment, safety gear for health workers, for example, to deploy and manufacture new ventilators to save lives, and to continue to deploy test kits for the purposes of monitoring the outbreak in local areas so that we can hopefully detect these hot spots
1: before hospitals become overwhelmed in the next and subsequent waves. So just to sort of lay the rumors to rest, it doesn't give the president blanket authority to mandate that everybody stay inside? It definitely does not. Okay. Are there other powers that the Stafford Act can open up for a president specifically? I think one of the most interesting things that's happened here
2: from a legal standpoint is that in addition to the March 13th emergency declaration under the Stafford Act, the president also invited state governors to request major disaster declarations under the Stafford Act. And those are two different things. They're covered by the same statute, but they offer different resources and different tools. That national emergency declaration did not have to be triggered by a request from a specific state governor. The major disaster declaration does. It involves a state governor or tribal leader communicating to the president in a specific way. Our resources either are overwhelmed already or about to be overwhelmed, and we need additional help. The Stafford Act Emergency Declaration is a little bit more controversial because the language in the statute is really written to encompass natural disasters. And a lot of the provisions there are also targeted to disaster relief and recovery efforts in situations where there is, for example, mass property damage in addition to the need for mass emergency medical care. But the Provisions that are related to, that are really designed for natural disasters are actually coming, could come in handy in responding to this crisis over the long term. So for example, the Stafford Act triggers a lot more financial resources, the, the major disaster component of it does, for things like housing supports. And in a situation where we're talking about people sheltering in place, staying in their homes, potentially for months going forward, I think it can be very important to be able to use those Flexibilities and resources that are intended to allow for shelter in a situation where there's a natural disaster to also use those here to promote safe and sanitary housing conditions for people who otherwise would lack access.
1: We've now established that state and local governments really have the power to make many of these public health decisions, even under national emergency declarations. But I want to talk about how social distancing orders are actually enforced legally. How do state and local governments balance civil liberties with protecting the public good especially in in such trying circumstances
2: there are some very difficult legal questions here and we are in untested waters we have never pursued this degree of of exercise of control over individual movements in response to a crisis at the widespread you know state by state level that we're currently imposing those restrictions And so I think in the short term, judges so far, there have been a couple of challenges and judges have been very deferential to state leaders with respect to the orders that they've issued. But over time, if these orders, particularly with respect to personal movement as opposed to businesses, and particularly if enforcement starts to look arbitrary or discriminatory, I think at that point, we can not only expect but hope for the courts to weigh in. The courts have an important role in balancing individual rights and civil liberties and guiding officials as they respond, even in a crisis. Just to repeat something I said earlier, our constitutional rights are in no way suspended in the midst of this emergency. Just like in routine times, our constitutional rights, however, are not absolute. They're balanced against uh, very pressing public health necessities. That balance based on court precedents in somewhat analogous situations, although again, this is an unprecedented situation, but those precedents suggest that the role of the courts is to hold leaders to account, to require them to articulate the scientific basis for the orders that they've put into place, and essentially to require them to listen to sound scientific advice. Now, one of the things that's really particularly troubling about our current situation is the lack of evidence, the lack of information. That standard doesn't mean that the that governments can't act in a cautious way. Uh, the precautionary principle is leading the majority of governors and many mayors to take the, the safest, make the safest assumption possible, acting on the best available evidence. But over the long term, I would hope that if surveillance level testing, if, if data isn't being generated to identify where these hotspots are, where we need to direct our crucial healthcare surge capacity resources in advance of death rate spiking, and where we might in some areas gradually be able to ease restrictions because we're determining that community transmission is not widespread in some places. If that doesn't happen, I would hope that the courts would exercise their responsibility to require leaders to also prioritize the gathering of that information, something that really is not happening right now.
1: So on the note of this the relationship between federal the federal government and these state level governments, I want to talk about what can happen if the president wants something different than these local Officials. So, for example, the president has been suggesting that he wants to resume American life and lift quarantines. And I- essentially, can the president order businesses to reopen and people to go back to work?
2: The short answer is no. The president certainly can't order anyone to go back to work or order any business to reopen. The state governments can't do that either. What the president might try to do. Um, but I believe strongly would be barred from doing by the courts if he tried, is order state governments to not enforce the orders they've put in place for their residents and businesses within their borders. So if the, if the federal government tried to block enforcement of the stay-at-home orders, of the business closures, that's when you'd have um, really a constitutional crisis at this point. At the federal level, Congress would have potentially um, much greater authority to pursue a lifting um, of enforcement of state and, and local lockdown orders.
1: But it's hard to conceive of Congress trying to do that. Is the notion of a national lockdown or a national shutdown happening at all a possibility here in the United States? I I never want to say never, uh, but it would be patently
2: unconstitutional for multiple reasons. And we've seen it in other countries and in other democracies, for that matter. Why not here? We have a very different governmental system. In our federalist system of government, the authority to issue the kinds of orders that are happening in for the most part, smaller or more centralized governments elsewhere in the world, that authority resides with the states and to some extent local leaders. It does not reside with the federal government. So I'm no longer saying that it can't happen here. It's happening, but at the state level. And that's the right approach. We're a large and very diverse geographically and in terms of population density country. And so the, the idea that you would have a national level decision that really has to be based on local conditions on the ground with respect to, to how the virus is circulating, it is really not sound from a public health standpoint and certainly not permissible from a constitutional
1: standpoint. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? The Washington Post has all of the information you need to stay on top of the latest coronavirus news. Sign up for our coronavirus newsletter to get our latest reporting and FAQs to keep yourself safe. Any article you click in the newsletter is free to access. To sign up, go to WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter. The Post is also offering live coverage and stories with critical health information for free every day on our homepage and at WashingtonPost.com slash coronavirus. And, of course, you can also use The Washington Post's podcasts to stay informed without being overwhelmed. They're always free online or on any podcast app. You can find them all at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. And if you didn't have a chance to write all those links down, they are all available in the episode description. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the unflinching Carol Alderman with production help from Ariel Plotnick, design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. We'd like to know how the coronavirus is affecting you. The activist, the campaign volunteer, the poll worker, the election administrator— the state delegate, the convention organizer, and the voter. Whoever you are, we want to know what this public health event reveals about us, especially in an election year. We're painting a picture of the pandemic from different perspectives over time. We'll be sharing your ongoing story on one of our Washington Post podcasts. If you're interested in taking part, please record a voice memo. Tell us who you are in as much detail as you like and how the coronavirus is affecting your life. Then send this voice memo to us at postreports at washpost.com. That's P-O-S-T-R-E-P-O-R-T-S at washpost.com.